There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Father, we again are thankful for the ministry that you have in our lives, which you've already accomplished and which you are presently doing. To bring us, Lord, to Christ and to participate in his life as our own. And that in Christ, Lord, we thank you that your word says there's no condemnation and there's freedom from bondage to the law of sin and death. We pray that we would have your understanding, God, into what this means, how it works itself out in our lives, and that we would live in accordance, God, with your strength and power in the truth of what you've written. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're still in this, this section of Scripture, this section of Romans, that is dealing with how the Christian life is lived. Romans 6, 7, and 8. That big theological term, sanctification. How does God work in us these things so that our salvation in Christ is not merely a change of destination from hell to heaven, but that it impacts our lives now. How is it that God does that? That's what Romans 6, 7, and 8 is about. In Romans 6, he spoke of our identity in Christ with his death, burial, and resurrection. And he spoke that having been identified with Christ, buried with Christ, raised with Christ, that now we are to present every member of our body to him as an instrument of righteousness. He makes the point that the master, the old husband of sin and the sin nature has not gone away. It was not crucified. We were crucified. But we do not have to live in bondage, in subjection to that as we present ourselves over to Christ. If we don't, if we try to live on the basis of the law, which is from God and is good, we will suffer defeat. If we try to live simply in response to the new nature that God gives us when we receive Christ, that new nature which orients us to God, which causes us to want to do the things of God, which makes our hearts, as Paul says in Romans 7, joyfully concur with the law of God, if I merely live from that new set of desires and orientation, I will also suffer defeat. God did not give the law so that I could live the Christian life. God did not give the new nature so that I could live the Christian life. These things orient me to God, but they are not sufficient for me to live the Christian life. And that's why the frustration and the failure that Paul mentions in chapter 7. And we saw last week, he says that there is evil present in me. And it caused him to cry out, wretched man that I am. There is a sense in which one can take the law of Moses and interpret it pretty superficially. The rich young ruler, you remember, in the Gospels did. He came to Jesus and said, how can I have eternal life? And Jesus says, keep the law. And the guy says, I've kept the law. 
sorry, the man said he claimed to have kept the law. And, and he hadn't, but he thought that he had because he was interpreting those laws merely superficially and not dealing with the real issues of the heart. Paul, I think, would say the same. That it would be, if we simply could live according to the law, we might be able, just through our own self-deceit, to think that we are keeping it, when in fact we are not. When the real issue is the heart. But when we come to Christ, we begin to see that Christ is not just concerned about whether I work on the Sabbath or not. He's not just concerned about how much I tithe and whether I'm, I'm keeping all the religious observances that I think make a good Christian. He's concerned with my attitudes every single day, with ingratitude, with complaining. He's concerned about, about how I'm relating to my boss, how I'm relating to my wife, how I relate to my kids. All of these things, which the law do, doesn't even touch, really. I come to Christ and I understand that now Jesus is concerned about all of these things. And you look at those things seriously and it will cause you to cry out, wretched man that I am. I have a little book that um, Marion Leonard gave to me a while back, Bone of His Bones, by F.G. Hugel, who was a missionary to Mexico a number of years ago. Excellent little book. Even in his dedication to this, of this book I was ministered to, normally I you know, don't even read the dedication of a book. Here's a missionary in Mexico who's writing about coming to personally understand his absolute need for Christ to be real in his life and the difference between imitating the life of Christ and participating in the life of Christ. And in his dedication, he says, to the memory of the precious child now in glory who in the participation of the sufferings incident to my missionary labors came so early to know the deep meaning of the cross. I dedicate this book. Listen to what he's saying. There have been so many people in the ministry, missionaries in particular, who when they've seen their children suffer because of their calling to the mission field, some have have. Have, have literally gone insane. I remember hearing Helen Roosevelt, who came to Columbia Bible College when I was there, and she talked about the rebellion that took place in the British Congo when she was a missionary and how brutal um, the treatment was, especially of the women who were taken captive during that time, the women missionaries, and how the, how the husbands, many of them, lost their minds watching their wives go through the things that they did. And, and life is hard. And on the mission field where Christ's name has never gone, and these people are on the front lines of extreme situations, and their own children suffering. And this man writes and says, My child, who is now in glory, came to know through, my, through the sufferings that came from my missionary calling. He came to know. The Deep Meaning of the Cross. I dedicate this book. That tells me that this dad had come to know the deep meaning of the cross. And he's not living in bitterness over what his son has suffered because he realized that those sufferings led his son to the very thing which he had been led to. To truly know, to participate in the life of the living, resurrected Jesus Christ. 
And if it takes suffering to bring my child into that, as much as I would have never as a father chosen that for my son, my heavenly father knows this is the better thing. Better for him to suffer and come to know Jesus himself than to never have suffered and walk in a miserable Christian experience. So he goes on in this book, and just I want to read just a little bit of it, because it hits here in this transition that we're at between Romans 7 and Romans 8. One cannot make a study of the New Testament without experiencing something of the nature of a shock in view of the glaring difference between the Christian life as we customarily live it and the ideals set forth by the Master. The grievous contradictions are so painfully evident that even those who have only a superficial knowledge of the Savior's word are shocked. What little faith they may have is shaken. And what he speaks to is the claims that Jesus makes upon our lives. The Lord says we are to walk, (coughs) excuse me, as Jesus walked. We are to love our enemies. We are to forgive as Jesus forgave. We are to be aggressively kind toward those who hate us. We are to be overcomers more than conquerors. We are to give thanks in all things. We are to be anxious about nothing. We are to rejoice in the Lord always. We are to think on whatever things are true, whatever things are honest, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report. If there is any virtue and anything worthy of praise, on these our minds are to be fixed. Enough. We dare not go further. It would only increase our shame and our pain. The pain of Paul in Romans 7, wretched man that I am. Because he knows what Jesus is saying to him. Rejoice always. Think only on what's honorable. Wretched man that I am. We stand indicted. We are not what Christ would have us to be. If this is the measure of the Christian life, if this is the basis upon which we are to be judged, if this is what God requires of us as Christians like Isaiah, we must cry, Woe is me, for I am undone. Why does not the Savior, so tender and so understanding, so loving and so wise, make requirements more in keeping with human nature? Why does he seem to be so unreasonable? Why does he not demand of us what we might reasonably attain? He bids us soar, yet we have no wings. Why does the Savior go so far beyond the merely natural and put Christian living on the basis of the supernatural? I protest. It is not natural to love our enemies. It is not natural to rejoice always. It is not natural to be thankful for the things that hurt. It is not natural to hate ourselves. It is not natural to walk as Jesus walked. Have we honestly faced this dilemma? Have we had the courage to face the implications of Christ's word? And see, I know we don't. Much of the time we just say, God didn't mean it this way. He knows I can't live this. I'm interpreting it too harshly. He understands my weaknesses, and he bends to conform to me. We're not reading God's word correctly. If we haven't faced this dilemma, we, are, we move too quickly to Romans chapter 8. If you haven't come to this, then you are not saying, as Paul said, wretched man that I am. And we'll never know the fullness of Romans chapter 8. Romans 7 is a witness to the fact that Christ's law is different from human nature. 
And it is an ideal that is unattainable. In Romans 7, we have the apostle's confession of failure, his cry of despair, his bitter regret upon finding that the Christian ideal was unattainable. Paul struggles, he agonizes, he weeps, he strives, as only this moral giant, one of the greatest of all times, could strive, all to no avail. The law of sin, he confesses, like the onrush of a mighty stream, sweeps everything before it. We do well to face squarely all the shocking aspects of this dilemma. Paul did. He candidly acknowledges that he delights in God's law, loves it, but finds in it something to which human nature cannot attain. If we will be honest about these things, we will find ourselves led unconsciously to take certain steps which will most assuredly usher us into a glorious new day. It led Paul to a great discovery. It will lead us as well. If we allow the word of God to have its impact upon us, to realize that God has not bent himself to come down to conform to us and that the standard is God himself, then we will hear that cry in our own hearts, wretched man that I am, which brings us to Jesus, who will set me free from the body of this death. And to Romans 8, verse 1. There is, therefore, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have to be honest. Christians are not honest enough. That we fail, we struggle. If we were to grade ourselves... Much of the time, we wouldn't even give ourselves a passing grade. I'm not even deserve a C, a D. I'd bring home a report card of F if I'm honest about myself. And I hear God's word, there is no condemnation. We need to understand that. So I don't want to pass too quickly over it this morning. I... In other times that I've worked through Romans 8, I've tried to get through up through verse 16, 17 in one shot. That's going a little too fast. We need to stop and think about this. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Clearly, we know that that pertains to the day that we will stand before God in glory. We have been justified. We've already seen, Paul's declared this most eloquently, that all of our sin has been paid for and that we stand before him justified. We have peace with God. Romans 5, 1 through 11. I don't think Paul's talking about that, though, here. He's already established that. He's already established as emphatically and clearly as any person could because he's done it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that we will stand before God in glory and be fully accepted. But he's not talking about justification anymore. Now he's talking about sanctification. And I'm so thankful that in regard to my present Christian experience, because that's where the difficulty is, isn't it? See, I can accept that one day I'll stand before God in glory and he says, Charlie, I love you and I've forgiven you and I accept you fully. But right now, I've got some issues with you. See, that's how I think. But right now, God, I'm not doing so good. Just ask my family. 
<laughs> I'm not doing so good. And you go, and that's where that's where the rub is. And so that's where the struggle is, because we think, well, then we just kind of we just we just walk through life with our head down. Did you watch the Little League World Series yesterday? Texas playing the Little League World Series? Here in this picture is just terrible. You know, first inning and they're up, they're down 4-0. And, by the, and then they ended up being skunked 10-0, you know, at the end of five innings. And, and here the, after the, and halfway through the first inning, this pitcher just got his head down. And he's throwing the balls in the dirt and everything, and the, and the, and the coach kept him in. For the entire time that he was eligible to pitch, the coach kept him in. And the kid had lost the victory <laughs> with, the, with probably the first batter that hit one of his pitches. He was defeated. And, he, and I think that's how, how we live much of the time as Christians. <laughs> We're so defeated. And I'm just thinking, they're hitting the ball every time. I'm just worthless. There is no, now, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's not talking about the future, though that's true. In the present experience as a Christian. Because, see, God isn't surprised. He knows that we cannot live the Christian life based upon law. He knows that we cannot live the Christian life based upon the orientation of the new nature only. He knows that the only one who can live the Christian life is Christ. And so why would he condemn me for failing to live the Christian life when I never could live the Christian life? He doesn't. If there is no condemnation in terms of my position because Christ has died for all my sins then there is no condemnation in terms of my experience because the same failure in respect to sin which so depresses me is the same sin which Jesus died for before I ever became a Christian. There is no condemnation positionally and there is no condemnation experientially. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if Paul's going to go on and say in this chapter... If you have received Christ, then Christ is in you. And if Christ is in you, then you are in Christ. So every Christian is in Christ. And that means for every Christian, there is now no condemnation. (coughs) What exactly does that mean? It's not that he's just saying that at the end of the season, every person gets a trophy. And that there are no losers. That's being too superficial. It's not that God takes no notice of what's going on in our Christian experience. He does. Very much so. We know that when Paul uses condemnation in Romans 5. I'm sorry, in the book of Romans. There's only two other times it's used and it's Romans 5, 16 and 18. This particular word. There are lots of other Greek words for condemnation. They all kind of have the same root one way or another. But I'm telling you, you know, this, this is worth writing a doctoral dissertation on. Because, man, you, you start getting out the concordances and looking at, at, at commentaries. And, man, people are all over the place when it comes to what does Paul mean here and what is the Bible teaching when it speaks about judgment and condemnation. But in chapter 5, the best place to go is just the same author in the same book, verse 16 and 18, <coughs> he uses the exact same word. And the gift is not that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in 
justification. Then verse 18. So then as through the one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men. So through the one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. Now, it helps to know those two verses. But there's still lots of debate here. F.F. Bruce, I highly respect him. Um, he says that, that this word <coughs> is not the opposite of justification. John Stott, highly respect him. John Stott says this word is merely the opposite of justification. <laughs> These are two big scholars. F.F. Bruce, John Stott. And they are opposite each other on this. One person has said... More than one person, kind of more the weight, at least the, the resources that I have, would put the weight of emphasis is on the punishment that comes because of our failure. The penal punishment, in other words, like if you were to stand before a judge, maybe in the old days a judge would say, you are condemned, and then he'd follow it with two 20 years hard labor. And so the hard labor is the punishment that comes with the condemnation. And so we might say, you are condemned, after reading verse chapter 7, you are condemned, and we would follow it with, to a life of defeat. Now that I can get my mind around a little bit. Because Paul, and I think that fits, Paul is saying in Romans 8, I am not condemned to a life of defeat. Even though the law cannot help me live the Christian life, even though the new nature is not adequate for living the Christian life, I am not condemned to a life of defeat. And that helps me. I think that's really coming close to here what Paul's trying to say in Romans 8. There is no condemnation. Meaning in terms of my present experience, it is true God is not going to beat me up for not living the Christian life when the only one who could ever live the Christian life was Christ. Absolutely. But it is also true that I am not condemned to a life of defeat because I cannot live the Christian life. And that's what Romans 8 is about. Romans 8 has 19 references directly by name to the Holy Spirit. There are more references to the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 8 than anywhere in the Bible. There were no references to the Holy Spirit in the whole conflict of Romans 7, 14 to the end of the chapter, verse 25. None whatsoever. And then we come to Romans 8 and there is more mention of the Holy Spirit than anywhere else in the Bible. That is there for a reason. We can't live the Christian life. And the problem's not the law. It is good. The problem is not the new nature. It is good. The problem is we are tr we, God never designed for us to live in any way other than participating in, drawing from Christ everything that is necessary. When we're young, we think, man, if, if, if my parents were different, if my siblings were different, if my school was different, if the weather was different, if I didn't have acne, then life would be good. And you get a little older, and all those things have changed, and you're still just as much a mess as you were then. And there's no excuses left, right? And so then we either go, you know, it's either defeat or... God never expected that of me anyway. And it's simply guilt that I've gotten that I need to just throw off because it's a false guilt. Paul says it's a real guilt. I stand in my own flesh as a wretched man. 
It's real. There is something evil in me. And it is not culturally induced. I was born with it. It's not due to my parents. It's not due to society. It's not religious guilt that's being put on me. Sin dwells in me. And it is evil in me and in you. And yet, because God knows no human being was ever capable of living the life that God intended him to live, there is no condemnation in Christ. Because only Christ can live that Christian life. And he does not sentence us to a life of defeat. Having said that, and I don't want to take away the good news, because this is good stuff. Again, keep God's word in the fullness of it in mind. Because we need to struggle with this. Go quickly, just a couple other places, so you can just read it, put your eyes on it. Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. And then I'm going to have us go over to 2 Timothy in a minute. Galatians 2, verse 11. Paul is confronting Peter, Cephas. Paul, the author of Romans 8. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. And there is no condemnation. But Paul stood, sorry, Peter stood condemned. Go over to um, 1 Timothy (coughs) chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. (coughs) But refuse to put younger widows on the list, for when they feel sensual desires in disregard of Christ, they want to get married. Thus, incurring condemnation because they have set aside their previous pledge. Peter stood condemned. A young widow, presumably, when she vows to never marry again, and she breaks that vow, she incurs condemnation. But there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is hard. While you're over here in Timothy, go to 2 Timothy, chapter 3. And one of the more familiar verses for all of us, verse 16. 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is inspired by God. And is sweet, easy sayings all the way through. No. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. How many times have you heard somebody say or heard yourself say it? When you are criticizing someone, giving them counsel, giving them reproof, maybe. Maybe... As a parent, having to exercise discipline, having to get in your child's way and say, it's not going to happen in this house. And you hear back, 
don't condemn me. Who are you to condemn me? Who are you to judge me? Paul sees no contradiction. Obviously, the condemnation that is not for the Christian, he does not mean reproof, correction, training. Two different things. What is it then? Well, if, if it, it deals with penalty, then it deals with the prerogative of God. And it's not to say again that we aren't in positions of authority. I mean, you think, God has established government. And he has given the government the power of the sword, which means it has the right to exercise condemnation. It has the right to take a life. Where there has been a capital crime, there is the right of the state for capital punishment. Paul, even in reference to the church, he'll write in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and he speaks of the man who's, who's living an immoral life with his, with his stepmother, and he says, I have already delivered him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. And he says, and you should have done the same thing. He says, we have no business judging those outside the church, but those that are in the church who call themselves brothers and sisters in the Christ, we must judge them. There's no option. And yet there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. These verses are not in conflict. It helps me to think that if I come to the place in dealing with another person who calls himself a Christian, of thinking there is no way that person could be saved, then I have crossed the line. I have probably moved into that area of condemnation because the fact is, I've forgotten something. There is nothing that I myself am not capable of doing. And because a person is living in sin does not mean that they are not saved. Again, the only experience, no matter how virtuous a person may be trying to live, his only experience will be failure. We may not see that failure. God sees it. He himself sees it, if he's at all honest. And he himself sees himself as being condemned because he faces the reality of his heart. I am not living the life that I'm supposed to live. And every one of us know that's true. And it's just a matter of degree from there, isn't it? Some person is just living in open, total rebellion against God. And yet claims to be saved. And another person who's not living in total rebellion, yet he knows in his heart he is not living the life he should live. It is failure on both sides. And there is no condemnation. So I'm not in a position to say to somebody, how in the world can you claim to be a Christian and be living that way? But on the other hand, I have every obligation as a brother in Christ who loves to say, Brother, this is wrong. This is dishonoring to Jesus, to the one who has purchased you with his own blood. This is not what you are, and this is not how you have to live. We have every obligation, every right, every responsibility in Christ 
to go to one who claims to be the Lord's and to lovingly speak the truth, to give the rebuke, to give the reproof, and at times to give discipline. When a church exercises discipline, it's always in the hope of restoration, not in a spirit of condemnation. Get out from us. We want nothing to do with you. But it's, brother, your sin has caused you to break fellowship with God. And how can we claim fellowship with you when your fellowship is broken with God? The only thing we can do in the hope of restoration, in the hope of you coming to repentance, is to say, our fellowship with you also has to change. But that is not condemning the person. The hope, the longing, is that person would repent, turn from his sin, come back to Christ, and that the fellowship with the body of Christ would be restored. It is not condemnation. It's the hope of restoration. One of the reasons, and I think we we don't meditate on this enough, that Paul is so emphatic, and this is an absolute of Scripture, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. One of the reasons that he can be so emphatic about it is because of that little two-letter preposition, in. If you are in Jesus, there cannot be condemnation any more than there can be condemnation within the Godhead itself, between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It cannot happen. And if you are in Christ, you, are, you are, have been brought into that relationship. That's what John 17 is about. You have been brought into a relationship of acceptance, a relationship of respect, of security, of worth, of appreciation. Never, not a hint, not even a glance of condemnation exists within that relationship. And that's the relationship that we have been made participants of in Christ. It's pretty awesome to think about. Not even the glance. And we know what that looks like. Maybe we're biting our tongue. But the look in the eye is one of disgust. That does not exist within the relationship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It isn't there. You see where this is going. If it isn't in Christ, if it isn't within the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit relationship, Neither should it be in the body of Christ. If it's not in Christ, it has no place in the body of Christ. Not only does it have no place in the body of Christ, it has no place in the Christian home. No condemnation. This is why it's so dangerous when I, I, and it grieves me to no end when I see parents Label their children with condemning labels. It's to say there's no hope. When children are malleable, they're still growing. They have a whole life before them, but more importantly, they have a redeemer. 
And then we as parents would say to our child or say about our child, this is the way that he is. He's just a little liar. She's always disrespectful. She's a complainer. My word. Those are statements of condemnation. And there is no condemnation in Jesus Christ. None. Neither should there be condemnation within our homes. But we can say to our, our sons, our daughters, son, that's a lie. It's not who you are. It's not who this family is. That's not who Jesus is. And this will not be tolerated. It's not going to happen. We give rebuke. We do not hand out condemnation. Especially to a child. Not just that they have a life before them to change. They have a redeemer. They have a redeemer. And he does not lose hope in his own ability to bring genuine change to a person's life. And we lose hope with our children. We have moved outside the realm of what God is wanting to hand our children through us. There is conviction. (coughs) There is rebuke, reproof, correction. No condemnation. God will judge our actions. He'll judge our words. He'll judge our thoughts. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.11 says. But we will not be punished for our sins. We will be recompensed for everything that was done in the body, whether good or evil. We will not be punished for our sins. We will not be condemned. There is broken fellowship, but there is never condemnation. There is acceptance. There is love. There is grace. I wanted to read just a couple of verses in closing. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. And so as those who have been chosen of God, those who will never receive condemnation, holy and beloved, put on our heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. And is not jealous. Does, love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. Just an expanded way of saying there is no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. Can praise God, folks. There's never been a person who could live the Christian life. And God does not condemn you for your failure 
in living up to what you know you should live. But you are not sentenced to a life of bondage and defeat either. So it's not, again, two parts of this condemnation. It's not just that God does not have harsh thoughts towards you. He does not. But neither does he leave you to a punishment of defeat. Because, and this is where the rest of Romans 8, all of the chapters about, the ministry of the indwelling Spirit of God. I do not have to live in defeat. I will never suffer the condemnation of God. Not in the future, not today. He does not condemn me. Never. But he doesn't just say, I pass it over and give you a trophy even though you're a loser. (laughs) He says, I give you my spirit. That you might not live a life of defeat. But that by the spirit's work in you. And as you learn to yield yourself to him and receive him where he is the one who is living your life. Even though sin will always be present in you, evil will always be present in you, you may have all kinds of thoughts and feelings that come and assail you. You do not have to be defeated. Their presence will be there, but you do not have to live in defeat in their presence. You can live victorious in the presence of evil in you because Christ is in you and he is far greater than the sin which indwells you. Let me close us in prayer.